today. So long and thanks for all the fish. Again, it's Martin North from Digital Finance Analytics, Wealthless Post, covering finance and property news with a distinctively Australian flavour. Friday afternoon, Tarek Brook is with me. Hi, Tarek. G'day, Martin. How are you? Pretty good, thank you. Yourself? Yeah, not too bad, mate. Happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. Always good when you wake up and find you're still here, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know you know what? It is It is the greatest part of life, waking up and realising that you are indeed still alive. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, realisation is you spend one-seventh of your life on a Friday. So, you know, it can't be too bad. No, exactly, exactly, mate. You know, and you've got you've got the weekend to look forward to, and not only that, you've got our shows to look forward to about about every fortnight. Although, after this, not for a not for a little while, as you set off on your your adventure to move to the UK. Yeah, I reckon that we might be missing you know one fortnight or worst case two fortnights but uh, folks don't panic we'll be back we'll find a way um nine nine hours difference i think is the uh, uk to australian time um those interested in in why i'm moving to the uk i made a show about it the other day called so long and so long and thanks for all the fish um but the big explanation as to why i'm doing what i'm doing but just to reassure everybody still wanting to cover australia still running the surveys and still hope that i can engage uh, with some of those contributors like yourself Tarek, uh, on the channel and uh, keep uh, everybody honest about what's going on yeah mate. i mean you know i'm i'm in i'm in for the long haul so you know you, you know you, you tell me we're going to do it at you know nine o'clock at night that's that's fine we'll, we'll make it work and you can put it up the next day but all, it's all good <laughs> We'll find a way, and uh, you know the point is with the with the virtualization of uh, the media and everything else, it should be quite um, you know possible to to do this and to do rather similar to what we do at the moment um, to, with a bit of a time frame. So I might be able to bring a little bit more contrast with what's happening in the UK as well, because in fact I would argue the UK is about six months ahead of where we are in Australia. If you look at what's happening economically speaking, uh, they're pretty much teetering on recession over there, a lot of pressure on households and a lot of pressure on property. And uh, the latest from the UK is property prices sliding further. So I think um, we can look over there to see a little bit about what's going to happen here. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to just to see exactly where Australia falls in terms of the sort of wider comparisons, because we are, we still even, you know, despite the sort of recent moderation in property price falls, which have now perhaps tentatively, you know, resumed its more, more downward trajectory, but it, that's not uncommon. You know, we saw that in New Zealand, ironically, last February, where property prices went up and people were like, oh, well, you know, th everything's going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. Don't worry about it. This is, you know, the beginning of the recovery. And then it just went, you know, and went off the went back off the cliff again. So, you know, I, I think it's going to be interesting to see where Australia falls because, you know, we're sort of in this weird position right now with Canada, whereby, you know, low levels of stock are currently holding up the market. But I'm not sure how much longer that's going to really provide that all that much help. It's going to be interesting to watch. Mm, well, the data today from the ABS on new loans really, I think, spells it out, right? So there's a very strong correlation between home prices and availability of credit. When interest rates are low, credit's freely available, prices go up. We saw that through COVID and beyond COVID when they took interest rates down to stupid levels and all the government stimulus was thrown into home builder and everything else. That's why property prices went up. Loans grew in size and uh, everybody could get a loan with a pulse. Now, the reverse is true. When interest rates rise, credit starts getting rationed and tightened. The learning standards are actually being tightened, even as we speak, so borrowing power is reduced. Now, that's going to put significant downward pressure on home prices. And whilst there might be little wobbles because of stock and those sorts of things, for me, this overarching relationship between credit supply and availability and home prices is proven over the last 30 years. Prices are going to drop further. Absolutely. And I think that I think that a sort of a bit of context is really needed. And, you know, to, to, to once again, use what is probably your, your most used phrase on phrase on this channel, you do need to go granular. Yes, because it was interesting because there was a report in the AFR the other day from CoreLogic that showed that it's actually the top end of the market, the top 20% of the market in Sydney, which galloped ahead. You know, some places rose by almost 5% over the last quarter where you saw these big price moves. And that is dragging up the rest of the city along with it. So just because the affluent are getting out there and buying homes and they still have access to the, to the you know, the levels of, you know, to strong levels of credit, that may not be what's happening at the median, at the, at the average and what, you know, the rest of 
the rest of us out there are experiencing. No, well, that's very true. And of course, if you look at Northern Beaches, for example, which is um, one of the ones to look at quite closely, prices are still tumbling there. And I'm in Thoreau, which is south of, uh, um, of Sydney, down towards Wollongong. And the median price was just over 2.2 million a few months ago. It's now 1.6 and continuing to fall. So you can see these significant movements, you know, w w if you look granularly. But if you aggregate it all up, then as you say, the, the top end of the market where there are still quite a few transactions actually masks a lot of other stuff. So again, people can actually, you know, throw out these high-level comments and say, it's all going to go nice. And, you know, there's somebody tweeted just this afternoon saying, my two-minute take is that uh, property prices uh, have bottomed. Well, we'll, we'll see. We will see. Yeah, we, we, we certainly shall. And I think I think it's it's well worth, if you if you are looking for at a property or if you're even just curious about how different areas are performing, CoreLogic's Mapping the Market tool, which I'll put a link to in my Substack post, which will be linked in, linked in the description, that is really quite handy because it does show you what's happening at a granular level in, at a, you know, at a postcode or suburb level. And I think that's really, really quite handy because it's all well and good to, you know, like you can look at a map of say Sydney and you can see, oh, well, you know, Vaucluse is performing well, you know, Kalara is performing well, you, these affluent areas of, you know, where, where, you know, incomes are higher and people are less exposed to rising rates, then yeah, absolutely. But then you look in other places and property prices are absolutely falling off a cliff. So, you know, I think it's really worth taking a look at the data, if, especially if you're looking to buy, just to see exactly what's happening in the areas that you're looking at, because it may be quite different to what the headline for your capital city or what your, what your region is. Absolutely. And there's also the other site, which I'm quite interested in, is Spacious, right, which is this uh, relatively new tool that's actually showing the movements in asking prices. And, you know, that particular site colours different movements in different uh, areas. And so you start to get a clustering and you can see the, the colour and movement. And I think those two tools together give you a really good, um, more granular view. And I do, again, say granularity is critical here. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's really interesting as well because you see that because you can line it up with different things. You can line up, you know, that particular tool with core logic, but then you can also line it up with auction clearance rates from domain and from SQM. Because if if you look at say like a breakdown of the various different you know regions of Sydney, the eastern suburbs have been performing relatively well with their auctions compared to the to the median for the city for probably the best part of almost six months now. So that is masking the broader weakness that's occurring in the rest of the market. And that's exactly now what we're seeing in the core logic data. So, you know, you saw that months and months ago, but now you're seeing it, you know, play it playing out in, in you know, in, in, lag, in lag time, so to speak. And remember that the core logic data is probably a month or two behind because it takes a bit of time for the data to trickle through. So it's not really a leading indicator. It, it, no. it, it's somewhat lagging and you know so what we are now seeing is what happened um you know november december remember the rba didn't put any rates up in january because they were on holiday so um now rates have actually gone up again so the february rate rise and they're expecting higher rates uh, ahead and of course the um asx 30 is uh, you know the forward view is is talking significantly above four percent for uh, quite a few months now. So, I mean, you know, it, it's all very interesting. I should be continuing to watch this from uh, from afar, but still granular. I'll still run the surveys and still seeing a lot of pressure on mortgage stress there. And again, I would argue map mortgage stress into this too and you you have a another perspective. But we should get on and talk a little bit about some of the questions. So we both said, well, let's get a questions from the audience. And we have a few questions, I think, to uh, explore in our normal uh, chart fest. Yeah, well, more, more than more than a few today. We we may run a little bit long, but we'll we'll do our best to answer as many as we can. Okay. Right. right. Well, let's let's start with the old. Um, <laughs> so long, and thanks for all the fish. I think it's a lovely one. Of course, Doug, Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. When the um, the dolphins um, skidladdled away. <laughs> yeah, right at the right at the end, and right at the end of the world. So it's almost a little bit a little bit poetic that you're leaving Australia just as all. Just as someone in the in on Twitter said, you know, just as all your prophecies come true, <laughs> so long and thanks for all the fish. You're 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 off and away. Yeah, and that, I did actually almost mean that. You know, I've been forecasting this problem for a long, long time, right? And of course, 
I've, I was confounded by the fact that um, you know the RBA kept taking rates lower, governments kept throwing more stimulus, and people said, ah, you see, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Uh, unfortunately, uh, gravity works. It just might take some time. Yeah, unless you're a dolphin. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> so let's uh, let's start on. The, we'll try and give short, succinct answers where we can, right? Yeah, we'll see how we go with that. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't tend to work, folks. It doesn't tend to work. No, it doesn't. Okay, so the first question is from well, from quite a few people actually. So it can basically be summed up as what is going on with home equity withdrawals, considering the backdrop of rising rates and falling real incomes. And a big thanks to Martin for pulling this data for me early this morning. It is obviously very much appreciated. And this is the proportion of external refinances accessing home equity. So withdrawing home equity in, in cash or some other form. It's really quite interesting because the, the proportion of people accessing home equity as rates have risen has actually risen, which is the complete opposite of what we saw in the US. In the US, rates rose. People stopped pulling home equity, and even by the time Lehman arrived, the proportion of home equity being withdrawn versus GDP had more than halved. Yet here in Australia, it's still about 10% higher than what it was prior to the to the beginning of rate rises. So this is a, I think this is a really interesting one because this, to me, this shows that people can, A, rob, Pete, rob Peter to pay Paul and keep the wolves away from the door in terms of having issues with paying their mortgage, but B, also keep up their spending for a lot longer than the RBA would like just by pulling equity out of their homes. And frankly, you know, you're talking realistically probably still of, a, of around about, what, six and a half or seven trillion with a T in equity. Yeah, and it's worth just pausing to say, why is this happening? Well, the reason it's happening because we have an acceleration of house prices dramatically, you know, 20 to 30 percent up through COVID and through the uh, ultra low interest rate cycle. And so a lot of people still are sitting on sizable paper profits. And of course, as they refinance, they can actually release some of that and that solves some of their other problems and repay other credit cards and things. And the other thing is that the banks are still actually, when you look at some of the refinancing calculations the banks are doing, the underwriting standards are still pretty shoddy. In some cases, there are still some lenders who are not doing a new assessment. They're basically saying, well, the last guys gave you the loan, so we'll give you the, the loan, you know, because competition is so, is so key. And interestingly, somebody today uh, said to me, do you realise um, I'm being invited by my bank to refinance internally to get a lower loan. They're actually phoning people to say, would you like to refinance? Um, and, and interesting conversation, that included an equity withdrawal. So the banks are pushing it too. No, well, that's a, that's a good one, isn't it? You know, just I can see the next the next campaign, instead of, you know, waiting for your mate next door with the boat to ask you about equity, mate, someone just rings up and just goes, well, you've got a loan with us. Would you like some equity, mate? <laughs> yeah, exactly, just... exactly right. Help yourself. You know, it's, uh, it's free, <laughs> quote, unquote, right? Yeah, um, well, but yeah. <laughs> Okay. And, you know, going back to the other point, people, many people can still service these high loans, right? So so whilst we have 45% of households with cash flow issues, that means we have 55% who are fine at the moment, even with the interest rate rise that have come through. And uh, we are seeing wages just tick up a little. But we are also seeing, very worryingly, a rise in personal credit products, particularly for household expenditure. Again, that was in today's data, right? So the other route is if you can't pull equity out, then get another credit line, you know, get a, another credit card, use buy now, pay later. And this is exactly mirroring what was happening in the US. If you look at the US at the moment, personal credit is rising dramatically. Well, I think that's that's really key. I and mean, you saw that in the national accounts a couple of days ago. You know, you've got the, the, the household savings rate basically collapsing back to its you know pre pre-covid norms mm. but it's still nowhere near its bottom where it was in the early 2000s and neither is neither is credit card debt in terms of you know credit card debt to gdp in particular credit card debt accruing interest because obviously a lot of people use credit cards in to you know for the points to you know roll over every month and they, they basically pay it by the time you know the, the interest comes due so there is a whole heap of scope for households to continue spending using credit and using home equity if that's what they choose and 
That I, in, in my view, if we follow the same path as the Americans, I'm not saying that we are, but if we do, hypothetically speaking, it, we could see high inflation for another 12 or 18 months or, or longer. Yeah. You know, that will support it on its own, in my view. I, absolutely right. And we're talking big numbers, right? So we're talking potentially more available through equity mate than was thrown through COVID. Quite, quite possibly over over a longer period. Oh, I mean, even if you yeah. even if you just look at say credit cards, Aussies could easily put 30, 35 billion on their credit cards and be roughly where they were relative to GDP before just before the financial crisis. And if you whack you know thirty or thirty five billion at the economy in terms of you know going through retail, going through the services sector, that is enough to really to to, to blunt rate rises in a big big way. Yeah. And of course, the other point there is, and Phil Lowe, when he was giving evidence in front of Parliament recently, made the point, no, not everybody is equally positioned, right? But what it actually is doing is bearing down on that proportion of people who have no access to equity mate, no access to more credit. They're the proportion of people who are getting squished. And whether it's 10% or 30%, whatever the number, depending on how you calculate it, right? What we've actually got is this bifurcation now between those who are going to be fine over the next year or two, even with higher interest rates and can pull equity out and, you know, run credit. But I'm worried about the ones who fall off the lorry because if we have more people effectively falling off the lorry, plus, of course, higher rentals as well, you know, this is going to put huge, huge pressure on individual households and individual suburbs. It is, and I think, to be completely honest, that's already happening already. You know, I think that that's, that's really baked in, unfortunately. You know, I mean, we, we've seen that with higher rents. We've seen that with even, you know, for example, with your own data in, in, on rental stress. You know, like with a mortgage, you know, there are sort of other options that you have, you know, like equity, mate, like, you know, hardship provisions and stuff like that. But if you're renting, you, you can't just ring up, you know, it's a lot harder to ring up your landlord and be like, hey, can I, like, pay you know, what is the, whatever the equivalent of an interest only loan is, you know, pay, you know, what, two thirds of the rent for the next year or <laughs> yeah. 18 months. You can't do that. So, you know, it's, it's quite a challenging environment, unfortunately. I agree. Next question. Okay. Well, I'm just going to, I've got a couple of other charts on this question. Oh, okay. Uh, this is US home equity withdrawals as they played out, as you can see, when rates went up, went up in 2006, home equity withdrawals peaked and went down in a big way and were basically Mostly, you know, at more than eighty percent gone by the time you by the time Lehman brother the Lehman brothers event arrived. So, it's it's really it's really quite interesting in that regard. And also, just for those wondering, we've also got a chart here because the thing is, is if you only if you only show if you show the whole chart, you can barely see that everything that's gone on at the end. <laughs> but if you you know with with the whole chart here, you can see that basically. Home equity withdrawals were basically non-existent, not quite non-existent, but they were a very, very minor factor in the early 2000s. And they basically risen almost 13-fold as a proportion of people refinancing. Yes. And if you overlay then house price growth, right? I remember that we've had a couple of cycles of house price growth. We had a quick run-up, um, you know, 2014 to 2016. And then we've had a run up from 2020 to 2022. So actually, there's a strong correlation between this this massive increase in property values and the ability to just magically pull money out from nowhere and uh, and then say, hey, I can go spend it on a boat or or whatever, or you know, pay down other debts. Um, this is a direct consequence of these massive manipulations of home prices. It is, and I think it's also evidence as well of the equity made economy, mm. because you know, if you look, say. If you look between the early 2000s and say 2012, which is basically when the tail end of the mining boom end ended and you started to see flat real household disposable incomes, equity mate was, wasn't really a major factor. It was still only about 5% of, of, of refinancing borrowers in this particular context. Yet it's risen more than sevenfold since then because the economy has gone nowhere in terms of the outcomes experienced by households. and. And to be completely honest, if you actually look at, you know, more recently from 20, 2021, 2022 onwards, it's risen even further because people have fallen further behind in terms of their real incomes. Mm, no, that's true. It's interesting that AMP put out a thing yesterday, which was talking about mortgage stress. And one of the points they made was something like 60% of loans are only about three years old. Or, you know, in other words, a lot of people move quite recently. So, again, we've got a lot of people potentially on older 
with smaller mortgages with lots of equity and you've got more others that are actually trapped in situations with very little equity. So again, you've got this bifurcation of those two cohorts. Agreed. It's the K-shape all all, all over again. Oh, yes. Okay. Next question. Nick asks, do you have any good charts or data on when the bulk of fixed rate and adjustable rate transitions will happen? Yes. Yes, we do. (laughs) Okay, the, on the left here, we have one from Westpac that basically shows that by September, by the end of September t- this year, almost half of all fixed loans would have expired. And on the right there, we've got a good one, which is uh, fixed loans in aggregate, which is from the Bank of America, which basically shows that it's all, it is very much a 2023 story in terms of when these loans are going to expire. But I think it's also just worth noting that while we are heading for the bulk of it, these loans to expire it, within the September quarter and and prior, it's going to take a while for this to feed through. It's not going to be an immediate, you know, lift as it's described. I think it's going to be something that's going to be a little bit more of a slow burn. But I think it's probably going to be a lot even even more painful than the sort of commentary would suggest in the long term. Well, I think that's probably right. And it's also worth noting that quite a few households have um, a split loan. So some of it's variable, some of it's fixed. So they are already experiencing some rise on the variable component. And now they've got this other one, this other nightmare when the fixed is reset and, you know, almost certainly will go from like 2% to 6% or whatever. I mean, that's a bit of a a, a scary situation. Um, The other point to make is there's a difference between loans and households. And it's interesting how a lot of the commentary have completely scrambled the two. So they talk about 900,000 households. No, 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 it's 900,000 loan facilities, right? Now, it might be a smaller number of households. So it's really interesting and important to understand the difference between the two. Yeah, and I think, you know, to, to once again go granular, it's also the fact that just because the household has a fixed loan, it doesn't necessarily mean that that household is going to be in trouble. You know, a household with a $50,000 mortgage may have refinanced from a, you know, 3.5% variable rate down to a 1.9% fixed rate, yep. and they're going to be laughing. It's not going to matter to them in any any real, you know, major terms. It's going to be minor. But so really, it's also about the value of the fixed loans expiring and the people who hold them. And I mean, I think the really, the really struggling people are going to be the people who borrowed at high debt-to-income ratios on these short-term you know, 1.9, 1.89% fixed loans, you know, who are first home buyers or people who have taken on these large loans to upsize, they're they're gonna they're gonna have some pretty pretty major problems going ahead. And I think that I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. It's maybe a little bit controversial, but what's new? <laughs> I think if we had the same settings as America in terms of the same the same laws, the same recourse, the same underlying settings from the government, the the regulator, the central bank, etc. Australian Australian property would just be on 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 the edge of getting smashed over a cliff right now. Yeah. Yep. But we don't. No, we don't. We don't. Although the three percent buffer is still um, present according to APRA, so they're not going to trim it. For now. Do you? I I, I get the feeling that that's going to be trimmed at the most opportune time. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's you coming. Know, it's coming. Why why waste the ammo now when it's when it's <laughs> going to be ineffective? Wait. Wait, wait until it, you know inflation comes down a little bit, and you can you can make a bit of a narrative. Rates have stopped rising. There's no point, no point, you know, handing the buffer now, and then you know you have rates rise by another you know one percent or one point two five or whatever it ends up being, you know, according to the market or even the major banks. So mm. yeah, but if they if they wait until you know rates peak and then it's like oh you know it's going to be off to the races again, you know, maybe maybe yeah. they can maybe they can fire up something of a recovery for a time. I think that's probably right. And the other point interesting on that, it's uh, somebody asked me whether the uh, 3% was actually bail induced and the 3% buffer itself isn't, you know, the regime allows for um, that, that to be determined, but the mechanism is actually down to the individual regulator within each country. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Next question. MSR asks, with immigration, the rental crisis, a peak RBA rate of 4% in sight, is there a point when we will see investors pile back into the housing market, or is this unlikely with RBA if the RBA's cash rate stabilises at 3 or 4%? <laughs> property investors. Well, 20% of property investors already left the field, according to my data. So they're all really in Why? Simply this. One, property prices aren't going up. And if property prices aren't going up, there's no capital appreciation. That basically means 
and investment isn't working. Two, the rental increases that many people have been able to put through are insufficient often to cover the actual true costs in net terms of running the investment property. And there are new regulations in with regard to things like construction um, standards, things like fire alarms and other things which are making it more expensive for um, investors to actually maintain the investment property. And of course, the government has actually trimmed some of the um, uh, tax relief that's there too. So those are some of the factors in the background which suggest to me that we may not see, we may not see a big splurge from the retail, you know, mum and dad investor sector, but we might well see build to rent coming through quite strongly. There are a number of quite big initiatives um, in New South Wales and elsewhere where effectively a commercial entity has been created specifically to build property down to a price to rent up to a price. I think we're going to see a lot of that and so we might find a different mix and style and character of, of those properties but most of those will be high rise, most of those will be cheap and cheerful in terms of construction but extremely expensive in terms of cost of rent. And in fact, Cameron Murray did some work quite recently to show that the you know this particular characteristic of this build to rent sector typically adds about 15% to the cost of the rent. Right. Sounds sounds perfect. All right, I'm I'm just gonna put this chart up of a lot of people have said that there's the issue of immigration and that that's gonna help boost the, the housing market. And yeah. In terms of rents, absolutely. It's going to make things a lot more difficult. It's going to put push put da additional downward pressure on the vacancy rates. But in terms of actual permanent migrants, the number of permanent migrants, the proportion of permanent migrants actually purchasing a property is around about 17% in the first year. Now, that's purchasing both paying with cash or also just getting a, getting a mortgage. However, it's also important to remember that this particular data is from 2006. I've looked for earlier for, for, for better data, but I haven't yet to come across it. So this was at a time when people were coming from places like Britain and uh, and other places overseas where they could come sell their house in, in, in London or in pretty much any, any UK city and come here and buy a house. Mm. And obviously that's no longer as much, anywhere near as much as a factor. So... But to, to go to the, the, the broader question, I think I don't think that we're going to see this big investor-led recovery in property prices, mostly because investor-led recoveries in property prices, they don't really happen. Property prices rise on the back of owner-occupiers and in, and in Australia in more recent years, first home buyers, mostly because these upswings in prices are driven by lower rates and usually some form of government incentive. So they are, first home buyers are the first ones to, you know, hold their nose, jump in and just get into the market because, well, they, they, you know, that's that's the way they have to do it because, you know, for a lot of people, there aren't any other options. So if you look at, say, for example, the ABS housing finance data, investor activity lags owner-occupiers and it lags first home buyers. So I think if we are going to see this investor-led recovery in property prices, the rest of the the rest of the, the, the market in, in terms of owner-occupiers needs to recover first. So, and I don't, I don't really see that happening any anytime soon because there's not really a whole lot of incentive because it, you know the, the yields are already garbage in terms of gross yields, yep. and they're you know obviously that's a gross generalisation. You know there are obviously pockets of, you know places that are that are, you know you can get a positively geared property, and if you can, good luck to you. But for the most part, they're they're garbage yields. So, yeah, and, and once you factor in net yields, well, forget about it. Well, I was going to say net yields, you know, typically below one percent for many people. Um, negative for about 40% of property investors at the moment. Compare that with 45 to 4.9% on term deposit. <laughs> Pretty obvious, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, not only that, but one of the things I think is really interesting is I, I do wonder how things would look if someone explained bonds to property investors, <laughs> right? Because you can buy, uh, you know, you can buy a long-duration Australian bond. You can buy a 20-year bond. You can buy a 30-year bond. You can buy an ETF. Yep. With, with with long duration bonds. And if you are 100% convinced that rates are going to go off a cliff, you can get 30, 40, 50% returns on that on that ETF. And not only that, but collect the, you know, collect the, the, the bond yield in the meantime. Yep. So that to me sounds like a better bet than, than property, but that's, that's 
that's just me and that's well, not financial advice no i was going to say we don't give financial advice on the channel but you know it's interesting there's uh, you know there's other structures you know i'm thinking of some of those annuity type structures now which actually are quite characteristically different you know some inf inflation protected annuities and things like that right the point is there is a pantheon of other options now property is actually not necessarily in first or second or even third place at the moment so another reason why many investors are going to say no i can find better elsewhere and one of the things i honestly find the most interesting is if you if you love property you think property is great there are other options you know you can there are real estate investment trusts there are listed real estate investment trusts some of which have been smashed into oblivion in terms of you know their, their their net asset value by rising rates and you know if we do see another leg down in the stock market they're going to get hit even harder yep. you know so the yields are actually pretty good so yeah. i mean obviously do your own homework and you yeah. know case by case basis and all that but i mean if you if you're looking to invest with cash you know i mean just you know do your homework there might be something better than property out there absolutely right and uh, you know as with all of this get independent structured advice um, from somebody who knows what they're talking about because it's too hard to pick it just the top of the end you know there's still a lot of people who say oh i never lose on property all right well i can tell you in my surveys i'm seeing a lot of people losing in property at the moment so property is not a dead cert no all right nikolai asks westpac has forecasted seven interest rate cuts in 2024 and 2025 sounds a bit too specific to me do you think it's wishful thinking given the time frame and the rba's inflation targets <laughs> well what are the bank economists doing right they're talking their own book right what they're trying to do is to alleviate any investor worries about um you know stress within their portfolio so of course they all want to see interest rates you know come down and you know the uh, the boom to come back again but it's have you noticed how they keep pushing out when rates are expected to come down i mean phil lowe is still saying they're not going to actually hit the inflation target you know in 2024 i think it's 2025 now that's his latest uh, view of when it's going to be there um i'm not sure anybody can actually predict that and the federal reserve is still talking about lifting rates higher so that's going to put more upward pressure here as well um there are so many reasons why interest rates are more likely to stay higher for longer rather than drop uh but i would argue again some of these bank economists have a particular vested interest in spinning a particular story and how objective are they well probably not hugely objective um they do also change their tunes quite a lot anz for example has been up forecasting again and now saying it's going to be higher for longer um cba tends to be sort of somewhere further further down so who's got the biggest loan portfolio cba well, it could be connected <laughs> For me, I think it, it's going to depend on whether, you know, whether or not we have a recession. If we have a recession, they'll probably cut rates, you know, that much or more, you know, mm. because, you know, whether whether or not we get un inflation under control is entirely another matter. You know, I mean, I think that we could still go in and still have 3% core inflation and the RBA would still cut rates if headline inflation came, do came down below their target, even for a little while, if things, if the, if the wheels really, really fell off. So, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's possible, but I think it's one of those be careful what you wish for sorts of things, you know, like a lot of people are wishing for rates to go lower yeah. and they might and they may go lower than they yeah. are now. But what exactly is going to go wrong for that to happen? Exactly. It's a sign of something, isn't it? So it's going to be a sign of the economy weakening, recession, all of those things. And, you know, the chances are the US will have a recession. There's probably already a recession in the UK, although it might be quite shallow. Eurozone probably too. And so these sort of negative cycles are actually tending to reinforce each other. And uh, the only blunt instrument they've got at the moment is interest rates, unless the Reserve Bank review that's coming out relatively soon now makes some alternative suggestions. But to don't hold your breath for that either. Yeah, even if they do make some alternative suggestions, it's there. There's the obvious. There's the issues of, of the downsides of those suggestions. Like, don't get me wrong, there are fiscal policy options. <laughs> there are things they could do. Mm. Yeah, there's things they could do. They yeah. won't do them. But yeah. if they, but you know, it, if you did have the RBA somewhat abrogate its responsibility, you know, for monetary policy for keeping inflation in check, the Australian dollar is going to end up doing their job for them. Spot on. And so will the bond market. Yep. The bond, watch the bond market folks i think that's where we'll see the uh, the cracks and remember the bond markets are continue to go higher and higher and higher and higher and in fact the um the two and three year is inverted in australia now first for the first wow. time 
Well, you know, interesting, interesting times ahead. I think it's only a matter of time before we before we see in, in a, a more full on inversion. But mm. you know, well, you know, yeah, exactly. Just you know, keep an eye, keep an eye on the, on the time. <laughs> All right. Homer asks: Given levels of government debt in Western economies, how can how can the current standard of living be maintained without zero government interest rates? <laughs> it can't. I can't yeah. see a way of it can't see a way of it doing the only thing that supported the standard of living um, over the last 20 years is quantitative easing and ultra low interest rates that's the reason why it's less bad than it would otherwise be it's not real though it's illusory because real incomes have not grown for the last 10 years and so many people are still worse off compared with previously apart from the few percent who are actually holding all the assets and uh, have enjoyed massive wealth growth so it's a very distorted picture. It goes back to, again, to not everybody's in the same boat. Unfortunately, most people isn't, are in the wrong boat. They're in the boat labelled paddle really hard to keep your head above water rather than the speedboat that's got a sort of a dial that says full speed ahead, don't look back. Yeah, I, I think for me it's a question of time. Can they, keep, can they keep rates high for a year, two years, three years, and just you know, basically print deficits in order to keep that, keep that going. Yeah. I think they, I think they probably can. I think, you know, that there'll, there'll be debt crises in the developing world. Maybe even if long, if it goes on long enough in the, in the developed world, you know, particularly if you do start to see some form of political fragmentation in the Eurozone. Yeah. But uh, to me, something else is going to break first. Correct. You know, you know, you're going to see corporates break. You're going to see the commercial, you know, mortgage backed securities market break. You know, you're going to see, you know, economies break before, you know, these, these, you know, these sovereigns do. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that in, in you know, on a long enough time horizon, they've all got problems, big mm. problems. Mm. But in the short term, I, I think that, you know, something else will break first. Yeah, I'm watching the US debt ceiling. I think that's going to be a very interesting little uh, trigger for something just a few months down. Yeah, well, considering the jokers that they currently have in Congress, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be surprised to see it driven to this to an insane eleventh hour deal, or even a, even a you know a technical default. Who, mm. I mean, it's a clown show. So. It, it is a complete clown show. Yeah, politicians and those who claim to be politicians really, a lot of them have no idea. Yeah, pretty much. I'll I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it at that so I don't get myself in trouble. All right. Uh, Eurovibes asks, what could the impact of housing prices, what, what could, so pa apologies, what could the impact on housing prices be if the majority of first home buyers start getting 40 year mortgages? Yeah, so it's an interesting question. If, you, if you've done the maths on an extended life of a mortgage, it does actually reduce slightly the monthly repayments. But once you get above 30 towards 40 or 50, actually the incremental benefit that you get is really very very low why because you've got this massive interest bill accumulating for a lot longer so actually there's a diminishing returns point which is probably about 32 to 35 years above that you hardly get any benefit all you're doing is just locking up more profits for the banks because you'll be paying for a lot longer yeah pretty much i mean i, I put it together a little a little chart here of what you can basically afford with based on your income income on the bottom what mm. you can afford in terms of a house price on the back and this is this assumes you have a 20 percent deposit and you've got money you've got cash for stamp duty and other transaction costs and basically it increases your borrowing power by about nine percent mm. so yes it can it, it could help prop up the market somewhat but we're also in the midst of a market where borrowing power is down over 30 percent Yep. So it's not something that could rescue the market single-handedly. Is it something that could, you know, put a rocket under it, you know? If yeah. we, so you could have 40-year mortgages and a reduction in the interest rate buffer and you have a cutting of the interest rates uh, and you have a bit of government stimulus. You know, you, you can pull all the levers and you can probably get another, another sort of wobble up. But the cost of doing that, oh, you know, we are, we are close, I think, to thresholds where, in fact, if they do that again, it's just it's, it's, it's going to blow up. So I'm not totally convinced they will do it or can do it. But the pure maths is that you can extend the life of the mortgage. It's a 100-year mortgage, if you like. But if you calculate the interest that that actually represents, um, it doesn't actually really increase the borrowing power sufficiently to cover 
what we would need to see it covered. Borrowing power actually for many people is down 40% now. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things I think is interesting that sort of just needs to be emphasized a bit is that the national median household income is only about $93,000. <laughs> now, I realize a lot of people are going to are going to look at that and they're going to scoff and they're going to go, what? You know, I earn more than that or whatever it is, you know, and... But that that's that's what the figures say. Yep. That's what the, that's what you know. If you take the twenty twenty one census data, I'll put a link in the in in my Substack post. You take the twenty twenty one census data. You add on wages growth. It's about ninety three thousand dollars. So that basically means that the median household can only afford a house that's probably just a little bit under half a million dollars. Yep. I remember it used to be three times the first income plus one times the second income. That's what the banks used to use. Well, and, and we had higher homeownership rates. Who would have thought? Yeah, exactly. Now it's sort of six to eight times plus, and uh, more people are spending more of their income just trying to buy somewhere to live. And unfortunately, we've got now a generation of people who think that's normal. No, it's not normal. It's it's extreme. It's been created by bad policy. Yeah, and I think it's just worth emphasising as well that that's it's completely undermining the economy. People, you know... Yeah, I just I find it astounding that the link between r stagnating real household incomes, you know, real real household, per, you know, disposable income per capita, and the fact that we that we don't have any isn't re sorry don't have any growth isn't really put together. I mean, even more recently, you know, if you look at per capita growth, yeah. per capita growth over the last two quarters amounts to zero point one percent. Yep, it's it's a joke. Yep. But nobody, no one, you know, very few people go, oh, oh, well, well, what about all this household debt? It's sucking in one in about one in every six dollars. By the time the rates to rise cycle is over, it's going to be one in every five. So, yeah. you know, Abs it's absolutely. Like, well, you know, if you can't spend the money in the economy and it's all going to the bank and then yeah. it's all going, you know, a lot of it's going off to offshore investors, then you know, well done. Exactly. Goes back to that point. There are a few segments of the population doing really well, but everybody is just paying. And I remind people, you are a cash flow. Right, you are perceived to be a cash flow as long as you go on paying and paying and paying and paying. It doesn't matter how long, it doesn't matter how big, as long as you can go on paying. It's when the music stops that everything goes wrong. And we are close at the moment to the music stalling because the proportion of disposable income that more people are actually having to now pay on those mortgages is getting to a point where it's excruciating, unbearable. And of course, we still have high inflation. That's why this is a critical point to you know, maybe think hard before you actually up that mortgage again. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think that's something that sort of you know just needs to be you know emphasised a little bit. It's just that I don't think that the RBA or or Treasury or well, a lot of other or a lot of other organisations, and probably including the banks, have fully grasped how much things have changed. If the psychology of Australian consumers has changed to the same degree, say, for example, as Americans, and they are just going to keep spending and they're just going to, you know, reduce their levels of savings, maybe even spend their savings. They're going to take on more credit, take on more debt, take on more equity, mate. If they're going to do that, the idea that inflation is going to come down anytime soon is basically completely kaput, yep. you know, which which is basically German for completely finished. So <laughs> is it's, it's done, you know, so... If that is the case, all these forecasts are going to go out the window. Rates are going to go higher and we're going to have all manner of problems. And there's going to be, and not only that, but then you've got the social issue of the fact that there's going to be a subset of Australians who are going to be getting completely crushed and there's going to be other Australians doing very, very well. Yeah, well, we've spoken before of this um, bifurcation between, you know, the haves and the have-nots in Australia. Unfortunately, the distributional uh, aspect of that is getting worse and worse, but it's by design, right? And it's also driven by this marketing-led you can you, you want to have it today right you don't want to wait till tomorrow you don't want to save first what you want to do is get credit right because we have had presented to us an alternative philosophy of life which is debt's fine more debt's better enjoy yourself right unfortunately there are some limitations to that strategy particularly when interest rates rise yeah and i will just add to that that it's not just you know, the credit thing. I mean, the credit thing is naturally huge and there's obviously all manner of issues attached to that. But it's also just the fact that in relative terms, people, you know, choose to live quite dangerously. Mm. You know, they choose, you know, and I don't mean that in it, you know, they're going to get eaten by a shark or, you know, they're going to go, you know, try and outrun a cheater or something silly like that. I just mean that in, 
in decades past, people were taught to have a rainy day fund, to be able to bail themselves out if they got into trouble, you know, and that's something that I had instilled in my, you know, my, you know, from, from my parents and my grandparents, you know, who are, you know, of, of a, you know, an older generation than yourself, Martin, <laughs> you know, and basically the problem now is that people just expect the government to step in and bail them out and COVID has only further reinforced that and people just expect oh the government won't let that that happen the government won't let that happen it's like well well, maybe you should just look across the the Tasman at New Zealand and what what the the government is letting happen and the fact that you've got the you know the governor of the Reserve Bank of New Zealand appearing before parliament and saying I am trying to cause a recession deal with it now, while Phil Lowe might not do that because he wants to keep his job, well, that Maybe. might be what he's trying to do. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, well, there's no doubt that uh, they want to dampen, you know, and, and they're trying to steer this, quote, narrow path, right? That's soft landings, narrow paths. We keep hearing those. Uh, it's bullshit. I got to say, mate, when you when you when you use language like that, it's just it just rams at home just just beautifully. And I I'm not going to add to that just to just to add to the poetry of that. And I'm going to move on to the next question. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> okay, Herbivore asks, how tied are interest rates in the US to to us in Australia? What is the max? What is the minimum maximum difference between interest rates and when what when did that occur? <laughs> Yeah, have you got a slide on that? Because I do. I do. <laughs> okay, well, I'll, I'll start this one. Okay, now, basically, the the, the biggest gap was I, I, off the top of my head around nine percent, which occurred during the nineteen nineties, just in following the nineteen nineties recession. Sorry, during the nineteen nineties recession, just before things really fell fell to bits. But more recently, it's been about one point two five percent, and that occurred just prior to the pandemic. Yeah, and I think that's probably a, a, a reasonable stake in the ground, which basically says if the RBA um, looks over to the US and sees the Fed lifting rates, they've got to follow. They, they can't let this go too far because, of course, there's a really significant impact on the exchange rate. Yeah, and which, is what, which is what I graphed here in blue. Yeah, yeah, because if the exchange rate drops, imports become more expensive. And that basically means that we import inflation and that then makes it much more difficult to be able to conquer the inflation issue. Um, so like it or not, we are lockstep with Fed policy. We're not unique, independent. We're not able to say, oh, we can just ignore it and carry on. No. Within bounds, you've got to actually keep this roughly in, in kilter. And that's why this is a really important slide. Yeah, no, I, I can care. I mean, like you've got the historic, you know, 1.25%, which we saw during, you know, just prior to the to the pandemic. But, you know, more, more recently, I would say that based on the forecasts I've seen from the banks and I've seen from the market, there's realistically about a 1.4% gap, which, yeah. which it may be sort of considered under the right set of circumstances. Now, I should very much emphasize here that it's very much dependent on bond yields Correct. as to what the RBA does. Because if bond yields really take off, both here and in the US, and then they've got, they've got problems because the, the the differential between the the cost between the the value sorry the return on an Australian government bond and a US government bond if it blows out too much in favour of the US bond then well less less cash is going to flow to Australia more cash is going to flow to the US and that will then put further downward pressure sorry further upward pressure on the on, on rates and further downward pressure on the Australian dollar. So I think that's really something that's worth emphasising because we could see another run up in bond yields and, you know, quite a few people are predicting that. Some people are predicting new highs for US long bonds. And if that happens, the pressure is going to be right on the RBA. And bear in mind also there's a pressure on the banks because they are having to fund their books, most in the international markets. They're going to have to pay more. That's going to put more upward pressure on the rates that they charge because they have to try and massage their margins or steal more from depositors again. Yeah, well, yeah, basically. I mean, you know, you, the, you've got not only that, but you've got the issue of the TFF, you know, all that funding <laughs> coming to an end. Oh, yeah. So, you know, the banks, you know, are, are going from basically, you know, having to, you know, pay 
not not you know they're paying zero point one percent, and then they're parking a fair amount of that at the RBA and getting a return. They're, on they're it, getting which. a return on it. Yeah, that's right. So they're moving from that to actually commercial rates. Um, I still think there's a significant chance we're going to see a TFF version two. Yeah, yeah. Well, inflation permitting, hmm. inflation permitting. I mean, if they want to crash the currency, they can go for it. But, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't rule that out. <laughs> Indeed. But yeah, I, I think that, that that sort of 1.25, 1.4% sort of gap is going to likely be maintained. But I think it's also worth noting then that you've got people like, say, Bank of America. They're talking about a, a US Fed rate of 6%. Yep. And that's, you know, you're not, you're not talking about some fringe, you know, forecast. You're talking about one of the largest major banks in the US. Absolutely. Well, Jamie Dimon said the same. Well, ex well, exactly. So now, you, you know, you've got, you know, basically two of the two of the biggest banks in the US talking a 6% Fed rate. So if you then implement the, that 1.25, say 1.25, 1 1.4%. That means a cash rate of, you know, 4.6 to 4.75. Yep. yep. So, and if bond yields really take off, maybe 5%. So, yep. you know, these are these are plausible scenarios. So, you know, if the wheels don't fall off, that is. <laughs> yeah, so the question is, which wheel drops first? We'll watch this space. Yeah, which and when. <laughs> okay. okay, Electrofried asks... Thoughts on the impact of the mortgage cliff while at the same time having our first recession in three decades. Bonus round, if you could touch on buy now, pay later and how that could be factored in. Could it prop up household spending well into a recession? So let's do the buy now, pay later bit. So definitely some people who are in difficulty have been reaching for buy now, pay later as an alternative to credit cards. And uh, unfortunately, about 20% of them end up paying excess fees, which means they end up paying more than if they were using a credit card in the first place. That's the first point. The second point to make is that the distribution of buy now, pay later, payday loans, and more credit cards is very strongly aligned to those under mortgage stress. In other words, people are looking for alternatives. And so what we have is a situation where a group of cohorts are actually really stuck and they're reaching for anything that's feasible and possible. Now, it's worth re remembering, of course, that buy now, pay later is potentially being regulated. The question of is it light or heavy or medium regulation, we'll know quite soon. Should be. It should be a seen as a credit product. It's not seen as a credit product at the moment, which is a major mistake. So it's definitely an important factor. But if you look at the total amount there, it's not huge. So it's not alone sufficient to make or break the market, but it's a signal of a broader set of issues when people have problems, when they're trying to square the circle between money in and money out, most people, rather than trimming what they're spending, try to find a way to bridge what they're doing, credit cards, buy now, pay later, pay day loans, and pay the interest and hang it. You know, that's, what, that's how they think. Unfortunately, all my surveys and analysis over many years suggest that leads ultimately to significant pressure and significant difficulty and quite often people have to refinance and then pull equity out to be able to pay down those loans do it once or twice and then the third time they often have to sell and get out so it's not a sustainable solution no i mean i think it's going to depend not very much on what this you know what this this upcoming economic downturn looks like you know mm. i mean we've already seen the economy in terms of consumer this consumer economy basically just go flat in, in a lot of ways, some states are going backwards. But I think it's going to depend on how things evolve from here because the US had two quarters of negative growth last year, yep. you know, and inflation still kept going and inflation now is re-accelerating. So I think it's going to depend on exactly what the circumstances look like. You know, I mean, we, we could see, I mean, ironically to me, the worst case scenario for the economy is that it actually just keeps kicking along at roughly this, this sort of kilter. Yeah. You know, because it, the RBA can't, the RBA is going to have to just ja keep jacking up rates. It's going to have to keep chasing the Fed and it's not going to have any justification to stop. Yep. So that to me is the worst, is, is you know, aside from, you know, the sort of cataclysm scenarios, it's probably, you know, the worst option. If we just had a recession yeah. and inflation got downward pressure, then it would be different. So here's the tri trick then. If you want the RBA to stop lifting rates, stop spending. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that's that's the thing, isn't it? You know, like if you if you and, and if you want the RBA to stop raising interest rates, then write to your you know write to your local member of parliament and talk and talk to them about some of the tax concessions that you may or may not like, or you don't like that you know you 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 prefer lower rates. 
over someone else getting a tax concession. Absolutely right. Yes. Now we're getting into it. There's a whole yeah, political well, exactly. You know, you take yeah. negative gearing out of the equation. That's yeah. that's another couple of billion. You know, another yeah. another bit, couple of billion a year for the government. But it's a couple mm. of billion that doesn't have to come out of the pockets and out of the economy, out of mortgage holders. Absolutely, and that takes us interestingly into the sort of the superannuation discussion and the fifty billion and what have you. Right. So you know, a very minor change there, but it's worth just reflecting on how much. It's costing the overall economy just to maintain the, 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 the superannuation system. It's going to be more than actually the retirement system, the pension system. It's really crazy, really. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And I mean, we can revisit that, but I just want to just, just I did do some slides for this particular oh, okay. question. Yep. And um, basically, I mean, you know, you recently you know there was basically a 4.4 percent cash rate priced into asx futures at the, at the close of the market yesterday it was about 4.18 mm. and on the right there we've got how many borrowers are going to be in serious serious trouble at a 3.6 percent cash rate so this comes back to what we were talking about before if we had us type settings and 15 percent of households in negative in negative spare cash flow well you'd be looking at you'd be looking at fall in the housing market falling off the cliff Absolutely. so it's all very much dependent on what the government is going to do, what the RBA is going to do, whether we see TFF 2.0 or, you know, what sort of intervention we end up seeing or whether it's just, you know, extend and pretend for as long as humanly possible until it no longer is, until it's no longer viable. And, of course, the government keeps saying we've got a huge deficit, you know, we've inherited a trillion dollars of debt, blah, blah, blah. We don't have capacity. We need to find ways to trim rather than actually expand. Um, interesting narrative, but... Maybe words and figures will differ. Well, that 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 actually leads into a question that Cade asked: Your thoughts on the stage three tax cuts in the in inflation fight? They'll be coming into effect at an interesting time. Well, they certainly will. <laughs> Absolutely, they should not be going ahead. In my view, it is iniquitous. Well, let me put it this: This just comes back to what we were just talking about, then, doesn't it? The fact that okay, if we're going to if we're going to put an extra twenty or twenty five billion into the economy every year in terms of tax cuts. To offset that, rates were probably going to have to rise more than one percent. Mm. So if it, you know, it potentially, you know, de depending on exactly how the calculations stack up at this level, you know, at least one percent. So mm. you know, to offset that, so yeah, I mean, okay, if they want to take, if they want to go ahead with that, they're gonna they're gonna blow out the deficit. They're gonna they're gonna hit things, you know, and they're gonna make the inflation problem worse. And no, I, although I will say, you know, I am an old school fiscal conservative, believe it or not. And, you know, I think that realistically we should be making sure that the budget's on a better track. And But on the other hand, I also think that we need to be looking fairly seriously at the expenditure levels of, of government and the, well, what would you call them? The bullshit jobs, the useless people who collect paychecks who had basically <laughs> nothing to the to, to, our, to our collective nation. Absolutely, yes. The people who turn up but don't actually add, add anything. And it's worth just making the point that the stage three tax cuts benefit the more affluent significantly right so the distributional aspect is is precisely what you wouldn't want to see what you actually want is to get some of that money down into the sections of the economy where people are really hurting and where things are difficult not just bringing the rates down from the more affluent that's the problem with it and of course it's well it's a sort of neoliberal philosophy i suppose but to me it's it, it, it's stupid it should not be allowed to go ahead will they should they and, of course, if they do, then they're going to be caned by the uh, opposition, aren't they, for breaking yet another policy? They will, but to be completely honest with you, I have actually been surprised at how poorly Dutton has performed, mostly because he's been given so many free kicks that he just hasn't taken. No, I know. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, like, you're you're from the Liberal Party, you're from the party mm. of small government, and then mm. Albo turns around, you know, Westpac's talking a net migration figure of 400k, yep. you know, when Albo was talking about 160 permanent, 160k permanent migrants being too many, yeah. it's like, mate, you're missing the free kicks in a big way, you're getting your ass kicked in the polls, I get that you, you, you have your own agenda, but you know, if you if you keep going the rate you're going, it's not going to be your agenda anymore. It's going to be Angus Taylor's or someone else's. Yeah, no, I have to agree. And of course, the other point there is that they, I think they got a bit distracted by the voice and some of the things around there and a few of the important but not critical issues that I think should be being discussed. But I agree, he's not performing at all well. Um, and 
by the way, the um, Labor government, of course, isn't tackling any of the big issues. They're sort of tiptoeing around the edge and doing little things that you, they can claim a little bit of a you know media bite, you know, like the superannuation things, but they're not wanting to tackle the fundamental questions and issues that we're actually facing. They're, I'm afraid both sides of politics, to me, are not necessarily doing what I would want them to do, and I have a feeling that they're rather similar in terms of many of the philosophical drivers that are actually driving them to do what they're doing. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes, you know, like, it's a bit of a stretch, but let's just explore this theory for a minute. I, I, I do wonder sometimes if they're baiting Dutton into doing something stupid. Which he's done, right? <laughs> you know, and you know that you know he's turned around and he's supported a policy where basically he wants to protect the superannuation tax concessions at the top zero point three percent. Now, leaving aside whatever you know, whatever whether you agree or disagree with that, at the end of the day, it has very very wide popular support. It's it's popular to the point where they're making fun of how stupid people are who oppose it on morning breakfast television. Yeah. That's that's how it's seen. You know, you know, there's there's jokes, there's everything. Now, whether you agree with that or not is up to you, but that's how it's being seen by the wider public, and Dutton is getting caned for it. So I don't know why he's doing that. But now, if they do turn around and they go, well, we're gonna we're gonna pull the stage three tax cuts, they've given that they, they, they've they've now tarred Dutton with the I support the one percent brush. So maybe they maybe they you know they modify them. Maybe they it it, it only goes up to a yeah. X or Y level instead of you know going all the way up to you know the, the the top so yeah. i think i think that's really just worth worth you know just sort of exploring as a potential yeah. sort of political yeah. backdrop no i think they'll probably will make some changes but they won't throw the whole thing out i think that's probably where it'll end up but um we'll see time for one more i think Tarek. okay uh julian asks uk versus australia in 2023 and 2024 ewan martin's view knowing the uk election is due in 2024 followed shortly by an an, an election in australia oh. are labor and labor wins on the cards at the moment certainly in the uk he's um quite far ahead uh, although in fact um which is has pulled back a little bit um, and the recent solution of the Irish problem um, potentially might give them a little bit more wriggle room. And, of course, also the energy prices are coming down, although the energy price cap, um, which is effectively the government supporting um, consumers and small businesses, um, they're still putting energy prices up, so the cap's being reduced. So there's, there's a lot in play. But I do think that at the moment many people in the UK want an alternative because um, they've had the, the same sort of flavour of, of government for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, if you think of some of the colourful characters that have been uh, PM over recent times and some of the things that they've done, you sort of think maybe we want somebody sensible and maybe we want somebody who's trustworthy and who actually says what he does and does what he says, right? So that's where that is. The economy in the UK is very close to recession. They didn't actually quite get into recession, but it was a sort of 0.1% um, growth so over the last quarter. Um, so it's it's very, very worrying about what's going on there. The cost of living continues to rise. And guess what? They ran out of tomatoes and um, capsicums and or peppers and things the other week because uh, the international supply chains um, are being directed to Europe rather than actually to the UK. So they've got a few issues post-Brexit too. So, But Labour, I think, is most likely, likely there. Um, and I, I said earlier on, I think in a way the UK is further down the hill compared with Australia. I think that the impact of higher interest rates and some of the other things, you know, will play through into Australia. Um, I think that it is quite likely, though, that the opposition will not muster itself here in Australia in time for the next election. So unless Albo does something really stupid... Um, he's probably going to sort of be a safe pair of hands and, and try and muddle through. But I do worry about energy prices. I do think that's probably a sleeper. And I do think that some of his commitments that have been made to things like um, green and, you know, low carbon economies and things, those are issues that could still bite. So it's not necessarily completely certain. Yeah, I would, I would broadly agree with that. I think that you know, I think that the Aussie economy is going to do better than the UK economy mm. until it doesn't. I know, that, <laughs> I know that's a little bit of a, you know, how long is a piece of string sort of answer. But, I mean, it's also going to depend on how China performs, you know, heading into the heading into the, the rest of this year. 
you know, if we if the Chinese consumer economy and services economy fires the way that, you know, the bullish narratives would suggest, then, well, there's no need to import as much iron ore from Australia. Correct. Because why, why waste why resources? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Why waste resources building all these bridges, building all these things to prop up GDP if GDP is just doing just fine on its own? So, you know, I think that it's going to depend very heavily on what China does. But then by the same token, if you've got a struggling China, struggling Europe, struggling US, well, then we've all got problems. Absolutely. And and I, think, at, and I think that's the key point to understand. This is more a global problem than it is a particular country problem, right? We have a set of parameters at the moment, a set of uncertainties. And we've said in previous shows, I think, never known so many uncertainties all playing out at the same time. And I think that's probably true. And, uh, you know, there could be other things, you know, we, there's avian flu in the UK, right, which is a bird flu, right? Well, they're worrying about that now, crossing the boundary and uh, potentially infecting people, right? And so there's other things out there. So uh, expect the unexpected is my, is, is my sort of maxim for both uh, Australia and the UK over the next uh, few months. Um, but I guess, you know, we'll um, pick up the theme in a, in a, in a couple of uh, cycles time so we'll probably miss you know, one in two weeks and maybe the following week or maybe i can get going soon and that depends on the uk but i reckon there'll be a lot to talk about there will be indeed and i just want to just take a moment to say to say thank you for for you know all your efforts you know here and here in australia obviously the shows will continue but it's the end it's the it's something of an end of an era so i want to <laughs> say thank you to you for providing the opportunity for us to have a chat every every couple of weeks and to put this out for you know so many of our great viewers and also i just want to say thank you to the viewers for, for watching for commenting for sharing you know your your perspectives on things you know and also for the, the support you've provided to me personally on twitter or whether you've made a financial contribution it's all very much appreciated and i just thank you yeah no i absolutely echo that i think there's a great community out there and uh, so many people have actually been listening quite intently to some of the things that we've been saying whether you agree or whether you don't agree but that, in a way that's not the point it's it, it's a chance to engage and, and interact and so thank you for all those interactions thanks for all those messages of support and even those criticisms you know we do take them all seriously um and i just want to say uh, to you Tarek, i've really enjoyed you know the uh, interactions over the last um, few years um you know we've always said things are going to get interesting and they sure prove to be um but i think they're going to continue to be uh, interesting and um, i look forward to continuing our dialogues in whatever the um format and timing but you know we'll try and do it uh, in a roughly similar fortnightly sequence uh, after i relocate the reason i should explain why i need to actually take a bit of time off because this studio is very complicated and i've got to start taking things apart and it's going to take a few days in fact i had Edwin over today and he's posted a, a photograph behind the scenes on twitter of all my spaghetti i've got thousands of cables <laughs> and things and, and somebody said well just do it on, a, on an iphone now you don't understand right this is a quite a complicated setup with the the fading and the multiple images it's all done in real time you know it's all sort of so there's a technical reason why it is it's going to be off air for a little while. but we will pick up the pieces and thank you very much for all your charts and i look forward to um the next conversation uh, where i shall be nine hours different i think because i think the time change is about to happen so i'll look forward to that um watching your posts on twitter of course and uh, following you on substack and we've put all the links and things below so uh, people can get plenty of Tarek, even if uh, not on um, dfa for a couple of uh, cycles well thanks thanks for the shout out mate and I'm, I'm looking forward to our next chat there will be a whole lot to talk about absolutely okay. thanks very much take care have a good weekend see ya yeah you too mate bye